Good morning, and welcome to the February 21st episode of the Daily Wrestling News Show, where we're on a mission to teach, learn, and remember the history of professional wrestling with everyone who wants to join us. I'm John, and on today's episode, we're talking about what made Super Brawl 3 so special on this day in 1993. When you think of World Championship Wrestling in the 1990s, no doubt a few definitive images come to mind. There's Ric Flair and the Horseman, there's Sting and Lex Luger, and later there's Hollywood Hogan and the NWO. But early 1993 was a weird time in WCW that might be a little hazy in your memory unless you're a fan of a certain age and grew up on the Superstation. So let's look back at a pivotal moment in time for the company that would give Vince and the WWF a run for their money in just a few short years and talk about what made Super Bowl III a turning point in what would become the Monday Night Wars. The event took place in North Carolina's Asheville Civic Center, in front of just 6,500 fans. These were lean years for WCW. Don't get me wrong, the building was sold out with an overflow crowd of about a thousand watching on closed circuit next door. They just didn't have the courage to book a bigger building for fear of it looking half empty. But the most significant things happening for WCW were going on in Atlanta, behind the scenes. Ever since Ted Turner bought a majority stake in Jim Crockett Promotions in 1988, WCW was run a little differently than other wrestling companies. When an old interview came to light where cowboy Bill Watts seemed to defend a restaurant owner who closed his business rather than accept racial integration, Mark Madden brought this to the attention of Turner employee and baseball legend Hank Aaron. Watt, the man who was often credited with creating the episodic wrestling format for TV consumption, and the first promoter of a major territory to elevate a black man to top babyface when he crowned the Junkyard Dog as his champion and perennial headliner in his Mid-South promotion, was fired for racial insensitivity. Watt was replaced as Booker by Ole Anderson, another wrestling lifer with a similar booking style. But the man who took Watt's position as Executive Vice President of World Championship Wrestling's business affairs would turn out to be a less obvious choice. The likeliest of candidates would have been Tony Schiavone or Jim Ross, but the job went to one of their underlings, C-Show producer Eric Bischoff. Bischoff impressed Turner Brass early on with cost-cutting moves like switching TV tapings to a Disney MGM soundstage and lowering the number of house shows. He used his business acumen to restructure WCW's TV deal in a manner that funneled more money into the WCW budget. The unlikely choice was off to a good start. While Shivani would roll with the punches, Ross was none too pleased. JR had a close ally in Watts, whereas Bischoff was not a fan of Ross's commentary and tried to move his considerable wrestling knowledge to an office job. Ross balked at the idea and opted to leave for WWF. Before making a clean exit from WCW, however, Ross used his still-active Turner-sponsored radio program to help promote the upcoming WrestleMania, which no doubt drove Bischoff and Turner nuts. Also on his way out of the company was another great and underutilized wrestling mind, Paul E. Dangerously. Often clashing with the powers that be, this time Paul E.'s firing would stick, and he decided to head north to help his pal Eddie Gilbert book a little company called Eastern Championship Wrestling. So while most of the pay-per-view storylines were already crafted by Watts and Dusty Rhodes, Super Brawl 3 would be the first pay-per-view offering under the Eric Bischoff regime. And Bischoff had an ace up his sleeve. 
In the spring of 1991, the unthinkable happened in WCW. Cornerstone champion and legend Ric Flair not only left the company, but took the NWA world title with him to the WWF. Although a non-compete clause would keep him from wrestling, Super Brawl 3 would be Flair's homecoming to the company, with which he was synonymous. And Flair returns to WCW pay-per-view in the Carolinas. Now that's sure to be a crowd pleaser. There are some odd choices along the way, like opening the broadcast with Max Payne playing the national anthem on his electric guitar, Norma Jean. Payne, who you might know as the future Man Mountain Rock, actually does a pretty good job. The odd choice is in having a heel character play the anthem. No one's going to boo the anthem, but you don't exactly want a heel getting a round of applause either. Payne was on the card as well as a last-minute injury replacement for Ron Simmons in a United States title match later in the evening against Dustin Rhodes. Then Bischoff opens the show alongside Missy Hyatt, who promises a big interview later in the show. Bischoff seems to ignore her entirely before throwing to the commentary team of Tony Schiavone and Jesse Ventura. The opening match saw the recently formed Hollywood Blondes team of Brian Pillman and Steve Austin beat Eric Watts and Marcus Bagwell in a sloppy match that still managed to give a peek at the highly entertaining team the Blondes would soon become. They'll get time to really shine and a big step up in quality of opponents shortly as they are headed for a tag title program against Ricky Steamboat and Shane Douglas in the very near future. Next, Missy Hyatt is in the parking area for that much-anticipated arrival of Ric Flair. But she makes a rookie mistake by chatting with one of the several ladies who emerge from the limo first and completely misses speaking to the nature boy. Match number two was a nearly 20-minute banger between Two Cold Scorpio and Chris Benoit, making his pay-per-view debut. They not only put on one hell of a match, they perfectly timed the ending to come in just one second under the 20-minute time limit, barely avoiding a second consecutive draw as Scorpio got a roll-up win in a series of near falls. Davy Boy Smith follows in his WCW debut in a winning effort over Bill Irwin, who you might know better as the goon of WWF's creatively bereft pre-attitude era. An uninspiring pairing, and even worse, post-match promo by Davy, but the crowd is super excited to have him in WCW, so it's an overall win. Cactus Jack would beat Paul Orndorff in a Falls Count Anywhere match. The Rock and Roll Express picked up a victory over the Heavenly Bodies, and Dustin Rhodes retained the U.S. title with a DQ over the previously mentioned substitute, Max Payne. Ric Flair then enters the arena to a huge pop, and joins the announced team for the NWA Championship match between Barry Windham and the Great Muda. Flair is quick to point out that these two men are fighting for a title that he never lost. The match suffers for the fact that Muda has the flu, but Wyndham's performance isn't exactly stellar either. Wyndham gets the victory to become the new champ, and the constant crowd chants of We Want Flair are a harbinger of the fact that as soon as the no-compete clause expires, we're getting Wyndham Flair for that beautiful big gold belt. The point is further driven home when Flair presents the title to Wyndham, only to have Barry pull away when he realizes it's Flair trying to wrap the belt around his waist. There's a quick exchange of glares, but Flair leaves the ring to give Wyndham his moment. Now we move on to the main event. With a stupid name, the White Castle of Fear, a holdover from the Watts build-up to the show, and a stupid stipulation, it's not sanctioned by WCW, and the stupid mini-movie that accompanied it, 
full of late 80s, early 90s cheesiness, this is nothing more than a classic touch four consecutive corner strap match, and it's not even for the world title. All of which might lead you to believe Sting would get the win, and they just weren't ready to take the title off Vader yet. And you would be wrong. Although Stinger put on a hell of a David versus Goliath style effort, and these two beat the holy hell out of each other, spilling plenty of blood, in the end, Vader touches all four corners and walks away with the W. Not a classic pay-per-view by any means, but as the cliche goes, every journey starts with a single step. And the journey that would take us to the Monday Night Wars, the NWO, and 83 weeks of domination can claim to have had its start on this day in wrestling history, February 21st, 1993, with Super Brawl 3, Eric Bischoff's first pay-per-view at the helm of WCW. Well, that's our show for today. The Daily Wrestling News Show is a Minutes to Bell Time production. Learn more at minutestobelltime.com. This episode was written by John DeConti. Subscribe to the Daily Wrestling News Show on your podcast player of choice and join us in the Daily Wrestling News Show Facebook group.